As you're being seated, go ahead and open your Bibles. We're going to be in Luke 22 today, and then we're going to go over to Romans chapter 5. I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, it took a little extra effort. Today is, there's two things that converge uh, against church today. One is spring forward, the other is spring break. And so I want to thank you for making the effort to be here for worship. But let me ask you this question, why are you here? Why are you here today? People go to church for various reasons. I, I was at Whataburger with my daughters the other night. We were enjoying a hamburger and some daddy-daughter time. And I overheard this guy behind me. He was a, probably a teenage guy, and he was talking to some friends. And he said, I go to church because I really like the people there. I just enjoy being around the people. And then they talked to him a little further, and he said, yeah, and I like meeting girls, too. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting, why he went to church. Uh, some, some go to church because not long ago, God blessed you with a little baby. And you were standing here, and you were thinking, oh, isn't that the most precious little baby in the world? And then it dawned on you, God has placed a human life in your care. And you're like, babe, we're going to church. <laughs> we got to raise this child in church. And so you come because you're hoping that it will raise your children in the correct way. Many find church to be a sanctuary. It's a place where you kind of get away from all the pressures of life and you're able to calm your inner self and connect with your spiritual side. And one of my prayers is that we all attend church because of two reasons. Number one, we want to make much of God. We want to be worshipers. But number two, that we also want to grow spiritually. How many of you desire to grow spiritually? How many desire to grow spiritually? I hope that's one of the reasons why you're here. But here's the question. How does God grow us spiritually? How does God take us to that point that we become one of those individuals that has godliness about them, that has a wisdom, a discernment, and a maturity in your life? that just draws people in and draws people to the cross. Well, I'll tell you this, you don't get to that point of maturity simply by showing up twice a month. Christians love coffee, but you don't become spiritually mature just because you drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> you don't become spiritually mature because you have KLTY as one of your presets in the car. Spiritual growth is ultimately a work of the Holy Spirit within you and God uses different things to help us grow spiritually. So I was thinking about this, and specifically I think there's three things that God often uses. I'm sure there's more, but three things that God often uses to grow us spiritually. The first is relationships with godly people. So think back in your life, and there were probably some people that God has placed in your life that were mentors that helped you along the way in your walk with God. I remember whenever I was growing up as a kid, there was this little lady by the name of Miss Katie in the church. And I didn't really know my grandmothers, and so Miss Katie became a grandmother to me. She, I sat by her in church. She made the best chocolate cakes, and she always made sure that she sent home a piece of chocolate cake with me. Whenever I went to college... 
She even, she even gave me a little bit of money to help me with that first semester of college because she said, I'm doing this for all my grandchildren last, and I, I want to do it for you as well. And she became one of those dear, sweet ladies in the church that God used in my life to help me grow spiritually. I bet, as you look back at your life, there were people that helped you grow spiritually. I'm a big believer in disciples making disciples. That as we intentionally take time to disciple other people, that you find a movement of spiritual growth begin to take root within the congregation. But there's a second way that God often grows us spiritually, and that's through the spiritual disciplines. Now, you'll remember we talked about this all through the month of January. Those basic spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible daily, having a time of prayer, being a part of worship knowing your spiritual gift and using it in service to others, being a part of the community so that you are engaging in life and engaging in Bible study with other believers, walking through life with evangelistic eyes so that you begin seeking out other people that you can share the gospel with so that you might see them come alive in Christ. These are the spiritual disciplines. Now, the spiritual disciplines don't in and of themselves grow you spiritually, The Holy Spirit still has to do that work within you, but people who are growing spiritually practice the spiritual disciplines. History has told us that when we draw near to God, He matures us. Now, the third way that we often grow spiritually, you probably won't guess this one. Trials. Challenge. Difficulty. Yet the Bible over and over again speaks of trials as a vehicle for growth. In James chapter 1, the Bible says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Have you ever thought about trials in life that way? To consider it pure joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature. And complete, not lacking anything. Now, when we left Jesus last week, he had finished praying in the garden. Judas and the temple guards had arrived. Judas had betrayed him with a kiss. Peter pulls out a sword and is ready to fight. He winds up cutting off the ear of one of Jesus' captors. Jesus heals that man, and then Jesus allows himself to be arrested. Remember through the entire story of uh, the crucifixion, nobody took Jesus' life from him. Jesus laid down his life. And so now Jesus is under arrest. Now the Jewish judicial system was actually very well developed. In fact, it was one of the most well developed uh, judicial systems in antiquity. They usually followed very strict rules. But when it came to the trial of Jesus, it was like, All the rules were just thrown out the window. And in verse 63 of Luke 22, we see the beginning of the suffering of our Lord. His initial suffering took place at the hands of the temple guards. The Bible says, The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. And after blindfolding him, they kept asking, Prophesy, who hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things against him. Now, John's gospel gives us further details as to what happened during the night. 
It appears that when they left the Garden of Gethsemane, they went to a man by the name of Annas' house, and Annas had been the high priest, and he was still kind of the guy that called the shots. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was now the high priest, but first of all, Annas questions Jesus, and while Annas is questioning Jesus, Caiaphas gathers the, what's called the Sanhedrin court together. The Sanhedrin court was the supreme court of Judaism. Seventy religious leaders, usually Pharisees and Sadducees within the community, that acted uh, in a judicial way within Israel. And so Jesus is then brought to Caiaphas, and he is questioned by the high priest, questioned by the Sanhedrin. False witnesses are brought in, and they begin testifying about Jesus. But a problem emerged, and that is that the witnesses were not agreeing with one another. And so it began to look like that the whole thing might fall apart and Jesus would be released. But then they, they regrouped and they got everything together. And when daylight came, verse 66, the elders of the people, both the chief priest and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. And they said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Now remember from last week, The Messiah means the anointed one. And if you grew up in Israel, you looked forward to the day that the Messiah would come. Joel said that one day the Messiah would come and he would pour out the power of the Holy Spirit on everyone. And so people looked forward for centuries. They lived and died looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And now Jesus, the Messiah, is standing before the Sanhedrin and they don't even recognize it. And they ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Years ago, whenever I was a, a youth minister, one night at camp, after the services were over, we had our devotional time, and that particular night, about 10 students came to know the Lord as Savior. So I was on top of the world, and it was one of those really powerful times, and when we got back to the dorms, it was after curfew. And I remember the guys made a little racket whenever they got to their bunks, and so some of the other leaders they, they started coming down on me, and they were like, Lash, y'all are late for curfew. What's going on? I said, hey, guys, you know, we had 10 students saved tonight. I never will forget their response. They said, hey, that is great, but, you know, we have rules. I was like, okay, we're going to have a problem here, aren't we? The Sanhedrin should have been looking forward to the Messiah. The fact that Jesus was possibly the Messiah should have filled them with excitement. But they had rules, and Jesus didn't fit into their vision of what the Messiah should be. One of their large problems was they become stuck in the here and now. You see, spiritual growth is stunted when you refuse to think spiritually. When you get so stuck in the here and now that you can't see things from a heavenly perspective, it stunts your spiritual growth. And the answers to their prayers were right in front of them. And they thought he was the enemy. How tragic. What happens when we lose touch with our spiritual side is that the things of God become our threats. But Jesus said to them, I do tell you, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand 
of the power of God. So Jesus is basically saying to them, what difference does it make? If I tell you that I am the Messiah, you're not going to believe me anyway. And then he refers to himself here as the Son of Man. Now, if you read the words of Jesus, you will find that the Son of Man was his favorite title that he gave himself. Now, if you're like me, you think, okay, Son of Man, why doesn't Jesus refer to himself more often as the Son of God? Why does he refer to himself as the Son of Man? It's actually a throwback to the prophet Daniel. You remember Daniel of Lion's Den fame? Daniel in chapter 7 and verse 13 said, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the ancient days, and he was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here, he is saying, I am the Ancient of Days. I am the one who has been given authority to rule and glory and king, a kingdom that has no end, and every people and every nation and every language will serve me because I am the King of Kings who sits down at the right hand of God. I have authority to rule over every people and nation. To say it a different way, Jesus is saying to his judges, you guys think I'm the one on trial? And the reality is, is you're the one whose soul is on trial. You think you are sitting in judgment, and I'm actually the son of man. I'm the king of kings. Now, when he said that, the Jewish leaders knew what he was talking about. See, part of the irony here is that the religious leaders knew their Bible really well, but they just didn't know their God very well. And they knew that when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, that it was a throwback to Daniel. And so at that point, they all asked Jesus, well, okay, are you the Son of God? And Jesus responds in the affirmative, you say that I am. And so at that point, they cast judgment. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And at this point, Jesus is found guilty of the crime of blasphemy. The Sanhedrin court found Jesus guilty of a religious crime. You say, well, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is whenever you say or do something that makes a mockery of God. And so in Jesus' case, he was accused of equating himself with God when he referred to himself as the Son of Man and agreed to being called the Son of God. Now what is tragic here is that the Jewish leaders never investigated his claim. Because had they done so, they would have found that he lived a life of total righteousness. That in him was no sin. If they would have investigated his claim, they would have found sign after sign that verified that he is indeed the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Do you remember the miracles of Christ throughout the gospel? What do they call them? They call them, it starts with an S, the signs. The signs. What were they signs of? They were signs that revealed 
who Jesus is, revealing his deity. And so when he walked on water, when he healed the blind, when he fed the 5,000, whenever he raised Lazarus from the dead, all these were signs that pointed out and said, hey, I am the Son of God. And the ultimate sign that Jesus would give to show that he is who he says he is is that he would be crucified and he would rise again. This would be the definitive sign that everybody would see. Okay, he is the Son of God. Yet they did not investigate. They did not seek truth. Integrity holds little value in a court of corruption. And those who were supposed to be pointing people to God instead condemned the Son of God. From start to finish, the trial had been illegal in every way. It was held at night. Those who arrested him were his judges. False witnesses were used. Jesus was forced to incriminate himself under oath. Jesus' testimony was never examined for truth. In Jewish society, to avoid undue influence, the younger men were supposed to vote first, but in this case, the high priest himself voted. The verdict was unanimous, whereas in their society, uh, a unanimous condemnation was supposed to be, the person was supposed to be released. In capital trials, the sentence could not be pronounced on the day of the trial. And the one on trial was never to be mistreated or abused. In the words of the great pastor theologian Herschel Hobbes, truly this was evil men's hour and the tyranny of darkness. Now before we leave this passage, there are three lessons that I, I want you to observe. This may even be a good time for you to take notes. So if you have your phone or you have a notepad, go ahead and take some some notes here, okay? Three, three lessons that I want you to observe. I want to transition a little bit from Jesus' trial to our own trials and challenges that we face in life. When people accuse us or when people, things happen to us that are, are not good, that are wrong, how do we respond? And the first is this. Just because you do the right thing doesn't mean that everyone is going to like you or agree with you. Realize this. I used to think, man, if you just do the right thing, everybody will get on board and everything, everybody will be happy. But you need to realize you can walk on water and heal the blind and there will still be some people that want to crucify you. That's part of the story of Jesus, right? I mean, did Jesus do the right thing? Yeah, okay, I know that we're lacking sleep, but come on, here, help me now, okay? Did Jesus do the right things? Yeah. And he was still accused and, and, and mocked in this way. If you read the Bible, you find person after person that did the right thing, but not everybody agreed with them, not everybody liked them, and frequently they were persecuted. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Esther, Jeremiah, Hosea, John the Baptist, Jesus, Mary, Paul, Peter, John, they were all persecuted while trying to do the right thing. Jesus even said, rejoice and be glad whenever they persecute you, when they say all sorts of evil about you on account of me, because that's the way that they treated the prophets before me. Uh, if, If you live for Christ, there are going to be some people that just don't like this. Now, listen to me on this. You can control your actions. You can guard your tongue. You can make sure that when you pillow your head at night, that you have a clear conscience. But you can't control people. You can't control what people are going to think. 
what they're going to say. Now, there might be some areas of life where you have a certain responsibility over behavior. Maybe if you're a parent, if you're a supervisor at work, if uh, you're a teacher, you know, you have a responsibility to try to control the behavior in the classroom, in the school. But you ultimately cannot control what people are thinking, and, and you can't control people. Now, I've tried. I try all the time in traffic to control people. It never works. They never hear me. Every time I watch a Cowboys game, I try to control Jason Garrett. He never works. He never listens. He always does his own thing. Right? Positive time. Let's go. Let's, you, know, you know. Sometimes people are just sincerely wrong. It's not that they're bad people. It's just that maybe they don't have all the information. They just see things differently. And they're just sincerely wrong. Sometimes people may misunderstand your intentions. You can't really explain everything in your heart. And people see something that you do or take something that you say and they misunderstand your intentions. Sometimes people are just plain mean. There's some folks out in the world that they're just not very nice people. You ever met a not nice person? Yeah. And sometimes those people may come against you in some way. And, and realize that just because you do the right thing doesn't mean that everyone's going to like you or agree with you. Remember that integrity holds little value in a court of corruption. Sometimes you find yourself in a culture where everything is so skewed that you doing the right thing is actually looked at as doing the wrong thing. Secondly, sometimes you don't need to defend yourself. Now, Jesus could have easily answered every accusation that was made against him. They were all false. He easily could have answered all of those. Now, to be fair, there are times where it's good to explain what you were thinking or explain what you were doing. But there's other times where we just talk too much. Anybody ever talk too much? I get accused of doing that every Sunday. I don't know why, but people say I just talk too much. Jesus could have flown off the handle. He could have gotten red-faced mad at the crowd. But if you, read his, if you read the story, both in the Jewish trial and in the Roman trial that we'll look at next week, Jesus kept his peace and he kept his composure. You see, if people had refused to listen to his character and work after all this time, they weren't going to listen to his words at this time. True character is witnessed in time. Flawed character is exposed by time. And Jesus didn't need to defend everything that he had done. He didn't need to defend his divinity. His life had proved it over and over and over again. His character screamed in testimony to his divinity and to his goodness. And then here's the third truth. God uses trials in life to grow us spiritually. God uses trials in life to grow us spiritually. For Noah, it was enduring the scorn of the people as he built the ark. For Abraham and Sarah, they had to go through a season of infertility before he became the father of a great nation. From Moses, he had to come face to face with his own insecurities. He lived 40 years on the backside of a mountain before God raised him up to be a great liberator. 
David had to run for his life before he was anointed the king of Israel. Esther had to exchange the life of vanity for the danger of valor when she protected her people, saved her people from genocide. Ruth had to grieve the death of her husband, had to relocate her life. Mary grieved the death of her reputation. Peter wept in the courtyard, and then God used him to preach the great sermon of Pentecost. Paul fell to his knees in pain on the road to Damascus and then traveled the roads of the world planting churches. Mark, the young man, left the missionary journey because he was homesick, but then later God used him to write one of the Gospels. So know this, my friend. God uses the difficult moments in life to grow you spiritually and build your faith. So what is it that you're going through today? What's the trial that you bring in the door with you? Beyond the fist pumps and the handshakes and the smiles, what is it that's really going on within you? What's stirring down inside you? Perhaps keeps you up at night, causes anxiety to swell within you. First of all, let me just say, I'm sorry. As your pastor, it grieves me when I see people that I love hurt. I never, I never recommend that you just say, hey, I want to grow spiritually, so I'm going to run into trials. Come on, more pain. That's not how God calls us to live, but in this world, there will be pain and there will be trial. And whenever you go through it, it grieves me, it saddens me, and I want you to know this as well. When you go through that pain of grief, when you go through that challenge at work, when you go through that financial difficulty, whatever it might be, though I can't always fix it, though the church can't always fix it, we will walk the journey with you. Because as believers, we live in community, and we don't walk alone. And I pray that if somebody has been unjust towards you, that they might experience justice. I pray that you might experience blessing. But I also know this, that God will use your affliction to grow you. If you have your Bibles, look with me to Romans chapter 5. I want us to land on this verse, this passage today, and then we'll be finished. This is one of the great summit texts of all the Scripture. This is a Mount Everest text, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here's what the Scriptures say. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, because of everything that Jesus has done, because of who He is, because of His death, because of His resurrection, because of the call that He has brought to you to believe in Him, and because you have believed in Him in faith, God has declared you righteous, and because of that declaration, because He sees you in Christ, you now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace with God is not found because of how good you are, how attractive you are, how charismatic you are. That peace with God is found through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we have also obtained access through Him by faith. So God says, uh, the Creator of the universe, the one whose name is hallowed, the one that, that dominated, the, the sovereign over all, He also grants you access to me so that you might be, be my child, so that we might grow close to God, that we might know Him, and, and we are called into this grace, verse 2, in which we stand. So now when we come before God, because of who Christ is and what He has done for us, we stand in grace. 
We don't stand before God on our performance. We don't stand before God on law. We stand before God in the grace of Christ. And that means that the ground beneath us is secure because it's been secured by the blood of Christ. You stand in grace and you stand firmly because your salvation has been secured by Christ's work, not your work. Well, it continues. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because we stand in grace, because we've been declared righteous, we rejoice in a hope that outlives the hundred-year window that we call life here on earth. We rejoice in a hope of eternity. We rejoice with a hope that never ends, the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, verse 3, and not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. All right, now the brakes just started squealing. Okay, first couple verses, I'm tracking I've been saved, I stand in grace, I rejoice in hope. And then in verse 3 it says, I rejoice in affliction? What's up with that? How do we rejoice in affliction? Yeah, it says, you rejoice in affliction because we know something. What do we know? We know that affliction produces endurance. When you go through that trial, God grows within you endurance. And endurance produces proven character. So when you persevere through the trial, God grows within you endurance. And on the other side of the trial, there is what we call proven character. Your life reveals that what you believe about God is authentic and that God is doing a work within you. And people look at your life and they see the destination point known as character that is proven on the pages of life. And then notice verse 4. And proven character produces hope. So the affliction leads to endurance. The endurance leads to character. And the character leads us back to hope, which is what we rejoice in in the first place. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this hope will not disappoint us. You ever had anybody disappoint you? Put your hope in a person. Put your hope in a something. And then you find out that it was actually false hope. It wasn't the real. You know, you know, our hope, our faith is never any greater than the person or thing in which we place it. And a lot of times we place our hopes in things that don't really have any lasting ability. But the hope that we place in God, the scriptures say, will not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts to the Holy Spirit who has given to us. And don't miss that last part. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There's times where we don't have the answers. There's times where you do not know the why. Lord, why did they die? Lord, why did this happen? Lord, why? Why do I suffer this loss? There's times where you do not know the whys, but God always gives us His presence in our cries. And there's times where he fills our heart with the presence of the Holy Spirit and he says, look, you keep rejoicing. You keep trusting in me. You give those circumstances to me and I will work them for your good and you focus on the purposes to which I've called you because I'm growing you, I'm maturing you, and I desire to use you in ways that go beyond anything you can imagine. The trials, my friends, help mature you. They help grow you. I look forward to the day when we're in heaven 
And that's no longer necessary. But while we're here on earth, the trials, God uses them. We go through the valley. And on the other side, we come out mature with proven character. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads, please, as we come to a time of commitment. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you. And Lord, I know that there's a lot that we bring to you. And I ask that your will might be seen in every one of our lives. I pray today for those that are hurting, that you might bring comfort to their soul. Pray for those that are seeking, that you'll give guidance. Pray for those that are angry, that you might drain us of anger, fill us with faith. I pray, Father, that as a church, when people go through difficulty, that we will walk with them and love them. And I pray that we will be growing spiritually as we worship you, as we serve you, as we grow in relationship with one another, as we share the gospel. And I pray, Father, that we might grow spiritually as we go through the challenges together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.